0: Hello, everyone. I'm Rania Kalik, and this is Dispatches. Europe is on fire, both figuratively and literally. Amidst a record heat wave and a year and a half into the war in Ukraine, Europe seems desperate to sacrifice its people in service of U.S. empire. Western sanctions on Russia, which was Europe's biggest gas supplier, and an uptick in military spending mixed in with austerity has lowered European living standards in the sweltering heat while exacerbating fuel and food shortages around the world. All the while, the U.S. continues pouring billions of dollars of weapons into the conflict to drag it out as long as possible to weaken Russia, fighting to the last Ukrainian. Not much has changed in this war, except that more Russians and Ukrainians have died in what looks like a stalemate, fueled by a never-ending weapons supply from the West, soon to include cluster munitions. And those weapons continue to risk ending up in the hands of the far right in Ukraine, which the media has stopped talking about. And Zelensky continues to tour the world, trying to sell Ukraine as a democracy defending freedom everywhere. And most of the third world is still refusing to play along, recognizing this as a ploy in the Cold War against China and Russia. Western countries have continued to ratchet up the censorship and pressure campaigns to hide the dirty truths about their proxy war. To discuss the censored reality of the war in Ukraine and its horrific consequences, I'm once again joined by Tariq Cyril Amar, a historian from Germany who's currently Associate Professor of History at Koch University in Istanbul, working on Russian, Ukrainian, and generally East European history. But before we jump into it, this is just the first half of this episode. The second half is available to Breakthrough News members only. You can become a member at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. Tariq, welcome back to the show.
1: Hi, thanks for having me again.
0: Well, it's so good to have you back on. And, you know, uh, we're starting to sound like broken records, I guess, because we're talking about the same topic we've continued to talk about, which is the war in Ukraine. And not much has changed, of course, except that it's gotten uh, slightly more uh, destructive. (laughs) Uh, More people have unfortunately died. Uh, And, of course, it seems like there's no end in sight with this war. And I want to start out by asking you, for your take on a uh, recent development, not necessarily pertaining to the war in Ukraine exactly, but quite tangential to it. And that is the fact that, as I'm sure you saw, Victoria Newland at the State Department <laughs> received a promotion Um, she is now going to be just below Anthony Blinken as the Mm -hmm. acting acting deputy secretary of state Um, and you know this is somebody for those who don't know during her time uh, during the Obama administration in 2014 uh, she played a pretty major role in the ultimate uh, you know what most people call depending on where they fall you know on the, the political spectrum some call a coup in Ukraine. Um, Others call it, you know, a a revolution. You can, I guess, it depends how you look at it, but I think a lot of people who watch this show would refer to it as a coup. She played a pretty dominant role in pushing that to get rid of what was seen then as a, wrongly, a lot of people would say, as a pro-Russian leader. Um, And, you know, this is somebody who also was caught on tape saying, f the eu um somebody who is Uh, very 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 hawkish when it comes to russia particularly putin i mean she basically just openly calls for regime change against russia to get rid of mm -hmm. uh, vladimir putin uh she's a regime change hawk obviously she's played a role in other parts of the world as well she's also you know just for some background she's also married to robert kagan who is a a very influential figure uh Mm -hmm. a well-known neocon neocon in dc who you know, the whole Kagan family played a pretty major role in the, you know, so-called surge in Afghanistan. Anyways, no. that's all to say this is somebody who's now going to be well-positioned to uh, influence policy uh, where policy is already quite destructive and hawkish. So I'm curious, what what do you think the significance is of Victoria Newland uh, being promoted at the State Department just under Anthony Blinken?
1: Yeah, um, I think it's a very bad sign, uh, just off the bat. Um, I, I think one can think a little bit more in detail about what precisely what kind of bad sign this might be. Mm. Um, but before I talk about that, I, I would like to um, say something very quickly about um, uh, the events of two thousand thirteen, end of two thousand thirteen fourteen, which some people call a revolution, others a coup. You know, um, I I I've been busy with this question, as you know, forever, right, and um, I, I have really changed my mind on this a little bit, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think when we last talked, um, I was uh, stressing that it had grassroots elements and that there was a real revolution happening because the then-President Yanukovych was, in fact, in many ways, a, a very um, <laughs> unbelievably unpleasant figure, and people had reasons to rebel against him. And But, you know, the more I think about what has happened and the more I read about it, the more I would say... Um, the way I would describe 2014 is it was a revolution that was hijacked by a coup. Mm. And unfortunately the coup really then in the end shaped the outcome. And and I think, you know, um, it's, it's even more tragic as a picture if you look at it like this, right? Because there is a genuine movement from below with which you can argue there's a horrible decision by sort of the liberals in this revolution to side with the far right. We've talked about that before the far right does exert a disproportionate and very detrimental influence. And Glacob was very proud of this and actually talked about this. All of this is true, but it's still different from the fact that in the end, what happens really, I think, is that it is turned into a coup. And that happens because of United States intervention in this process. And um, uh, in that sense, it is, unfortunately, it ends up as a coup, I think. And uh, that makes it even more sadder and, also, of course, makes it more relevant to the way that then the conflict in truth that we are now talking about that's still ongoing. So, um, Victoria Nuland, look, you've you've already introduced her very well. She's a super <laughs> hawk, right? Um, she is a firm believer in. There are different ways of putting this America, the next American century, American primacy. The United States really has to run the world. It has to build this sort of, she would perhaps not use these terms, but sort of liberal, with a a large capital letter L, empire that sets the rules for everybody. She is, of course, also behind this idea that uh, we should live in what they call um, a rules-based order. Mm-hmm. which is, of course, the opposite of an order, an international order based on international law. A lot of people don't understand that. And people say rules-based international order, they don't mean international law. It's, it's code for saying there is a different set of rules that sometimes overlaps with international law, but only if those who control the rules-based order feel like that. And when they don't feel like that, they simply do what they want, and that's a rule as well, right? So there's actually a real dichotomy between believing... On one side in international law and on the other side in this rules-based very vague notion that essentially says we make the rules and and we order you around you know that that's the rules-based order so newland stands for all of these things um i what i don't know is in how far the fact that she has been promoted again now she should never have been promoted in her whole life it's it's a catastrophe you know this string of promotions of this really terrible person into um, again and again influential office, I think the only president under whom she didn't play a role recently is Trump, paradoxically, <laughs> right? Everybody else, yeah. She's been around and shaping policy. Um, so this is either a routine affair, more or less, which shouldn't happen anyhow, it's Right? Or it's even worse, if it's not just a routine affair, if it's actually a political signal, if it's a meaningful political act to promote her right now to the second highest level under the Secretary uh, the, of Foreign Affairs, then it's even worse because I, I can see it only as signaling in two directions. One is Russia and the mm. other one is China. And then it's meant to say, look, we we are not giving an inch. We have run into trouble with our proxy war project in Ukraine. They know that by now. They know that even if they don't admit it. But we will still conduct the same hyper-aggressive foreign policy. And we will not look for any sort of grand deal accommodation with either Russia or China or both.
0: Right. And it's quite dangerous. The more hawkish all this gets, of course, because we're talking about uh, constant, ongoing, escalatory proxy war with the potential to turn into, you know, a hot war between nuclear armed powers, uh, which of course anybody who wants to, you know, continue to live on this planet should want to avoid yet. We have these insane people. I don't know what else to think of them as other than insane or sociopathic who just like, don't care about potentially destroying the world. Uh, but you know, I want to, I also want to talk to you a bit about the sort of, um, consequences of all this on europe specifically but first i want to kind of get an update from you on the situation with the far-right in ukraine you and i did a show Mm. just i mean i you know a few months after the war had started specifically focused on something that you're quite an expert on which is the various elements of the ukrainian far-right some of whom include neo-nazis uh and i you know i'll link to that episode in the description of this one so people can go back and listen to that because we went quite into depth And you also went into sort of the history and the roots of all that. But I'm curious, you know, now that we're a year and a half almost uh, into this war, um, we don't really hear so much anymore about the Ukrainian far right. You know, in the beginning, there was a lot of articles about the Azov Battalion, uh, about people who openly identify as neo-Nazis being some of the most, um, you know, I guess some of the most powerful Uh, militia forces in Ukraine. I mean, they have been integrated into the armed forces. um, And of course, they're the most ideologically motivated. So they're obviously going to be, you know, the strongest. Uh, So I'm curious, you know, now that so much time has passed, this war has continued. All of the same patterns, I'm sure, have continued where, you know, all of these weapons being funneled into Ukraine, some of them are getting in the hands of, you know, these people who sometimes are called neo-Nazis. Other times we just refer to them as the far right. But anyways, what, what can you tell us about from, you know, your understanding of how this war has developed. Does the Azov battalion still matter? Should we still be concerned mm-hmm. about this war empowering the far right, um, specifically in Ukraine? And if so, like what has changed since it started?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, I my sense is that, um, first of all, the the far right, if you use this umbrella term for now, right? In Ukraine, definitely still matters. Um, uh, and I think um, the fact that we haven't heard so much about them uh, can can be fairly easily explained, which is that Ukraine's supporters or sponsors, whatever word people prefer in the West, in NATO, especially the USA, who basically sets the tone, but of course also others, Great Britain is very important here, um, have, I think, made a fairly conscious decision on many levels in politics and in the media to be quiet about the far right for strategic reasons, because they're now allies, or they're at least part of an ally, right, in this struggle against Russia. Or if they're not quiet, then it gets even worse, then the far right gets um, literally embellished, right, and presented as either reformed, so there is this old narrative that has been spun about Azov for longer than the war, actually, which is this fairly moronic idea, really completely unrealistic, that somehow they have very, very far-right origins with straightforward neo-Nazi rhetoric and symbols, but now they have somehow become sort of patriots, but that's like the most you can call them, right? This mm-hmm. is a very, um, this is a favorite story of the people who try to whitewash them, and there's really no realistic reason to believe in this. Um, it's, it's a classical cooperation between, on the one hand, the far right itself, who very well understand this narrative and who use it, and sympathetic people in the West or sympathetic journalists on the ground even, who frankly fraternize with these guys, and sometimes women, and start helping them in narrative terms by turning a blind eye or even uh, prettifying them. So the the basic story is that the Azov Regiment, as it is by now I think called, inside the, uh, the forces of Ukraine, is still there, but of course They've also suffered very heavily from the war in strictly military terms, they had great casualties. And as you know, uh, one of the first major battles, very tragic battles of this war was um, the fight over the the city of Mariupol, right? Which Mm -hmm. is now under Russian occupation. Um, And in this fight over the city of Mariupol, Uh, There was a standoff. Um, This was the center of Azov as a movement and as a military formation. They retreated, as you know, into the appropriately named Azov Steelworks, right? Not after them. That was a coincidence. And after holding out there for months or six weeks, I can't quite remember, uh, they finally surrendered. Uh, The commanders were um, taken not into, uh, into um, didn't become prisoners of war of the Russians. There was an agreement that they were allowed to go to Turkey, where they had to live in a secure facility and stay away from the war. They were, so to speak, so to speak taken off the battlefield, right? In a sort of gentleman's agreement, if you want. Yeah. And the idea was that, uh, not the idea, the agreement was that they would not be allowed to return to Ukraine until the war was over. And as you probably know, despite this fact, they have now been released uh, just before the Vilnius summit. And uh, these five commanders have traveled back with Zelensky to Ukraine. That was a major media coup. And what we also know is by now that at least one or two of them have already said that they will most likely rejoin the fight, right? So they are they're breaking all, all the terms of the agreement. They're not only going back to Ukraine. That's the first way of breaking the agreement. Once they're there, they're also then already addressing uh, the public and saying, yeah, we are actually going to go back into the fight until it's over. Now, um, that is a media coup for them. That's a a single event and may not be as important, but the general story is bigger. The general story is that the far right uh, has continued to succeed very, very well in normalizing itself inside Ukraine, and of of course the war in that sense has helped it, because as you have pointed out, the far right has been able to pose at great loss, yes, they get killed for that, but they have been able to pose as like the sturdiest defenders of of the nation, right? And the other thing is, of course, um, that the connection with the far right internationally, which was intense in the Ukrainian case even before the Russian invasion of February 22, I think, if anything, has intensified. The numbers of foreigners who come in to fight with Ukrainian far-right forces may be a little bit lower than some people assumed at the beginning, Mm -hmm. and don't forget, there are also foreigners who go in to fight actually with Russian or pro-Russian forces, right? But once again, numbers aren't the real story. here. The real story usually is symbolism. Right, and if you look at symbolism, then you get the Belgorod raid, which happened—I don't know, months or two months ago. It's a bit uh, vague in my mind. But what happened there is that far-right and neo-Nazi units, literally neo-Nazi units, went on a raid into Russia from Ukrainian territory right? Militarily speaking, that raid into Belgorod Oblast or Belgorod region didn't really matter in the end, right? When it took place, it was was a bit like the Boghossian affair later. When it took Mm -hmm. place, there was a lot of sort of talk, blah, 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 what does this mean? It shows Russian weakness. In the end, it didn't have much military significance at all. The people who conducted the raid had some losses and then went back to Ukraine, right? But when you then looked at who these people actually were, Those were, in part, um, extremely committed and outspoken neo-Nazis, originally from Russia, who have now joined this fight Mm. on the Ukrainian side, right? Um, That was even picked up by Western media. You got articles then in The New York Times and I think in The Economist and saying that oh it's interesting who these guys actually are yeah isn't it and one reason why this also became a bit of a topic like a blip right it was also very very quickly then abandoned again mm-hmm. in western reporting was that on the way these these groups used american vehicles Very clearly, they could be very clearly identified as, I think, a Humvee and MRAP and whatever, right? And so, of course, that immediately raised the question, well, how did they get these obvious American supplies, right? They're not officially part of the Ukrainian army, although they work with it. The Ukrainians say, well, when they're on our territory, we sort of control them. But as soon as they cross the border into Russia, they do their own thing, (laughs) maybe, et cetera. So the question was, well, how did they actually get this major American piece of equipment? Well, the answer is obvious. They're just participating in the military aid that is handed by the West to Ukraine. And that brings us to this other topic that you have just raised, which is we've had a massive influx of weapons, right? Mm -hmm. Military aid alone from the United States is now above 40 billion in total right, billion, above 40 billion in total. Now, some of these are, this money is commitment. It doesn't mean everything has been delivered in material terms in some way, right? right? right. But it nevertheless stands for an enormous amount of equipment, arms, vehicles, grenade launchers, rocket-propelled grenades, small arms, you name it, right? It's all in there. So we have some, some people are by now studying this and are trying to get a grip on what is happening to all this material. And one report that has recently come out, and it's from a very pro-Ukrainian institution, but I still think it's more or less solid, essentially comes to the conclusion where right now most of these weapons are actually used in Ukraine. And the simple reason is that the war is so intense that, you know, it keeps the weapons there, as it were. But the same people, they're honest enough to say that once this fighting ends, there is then at least at the very latest a very, very serious problem because these weapons will to a large extent still be there. Some will have been destroyed, but many will still be there. And it won't be a simple fact to just collect them back or ask people to hand them in or whatever, right? And at that point, at the very latest, it is, I think, likely the authors of this rep- this report are much more cautious because they don't want to be so crass, I think. But I think it's very likely that at that point, at the latest, Ukraine will also become a major arms hub mm. and these arms then flow out again. And some of this will go to organized crime. Some of this will go to various radical groups in the world, and some of this will probably go to the international far right again, because back to the beginning of the story, the Ukrainian far right has always been very well connected internationally with other far right groups, right? So this problem, I'm sure some of it is already going on, but let's Mm -hmm. believe the authors of this report and assume that it's relatively small scale now, Even if that's the case, that won't help us much because once this fighting stops, the problem is going to expand massively. It's going to sort of explode and it's going to be very, very close to Europe. So the Europeans should really be extremely worried about this future that is coming towards them there.
0: That is a fantastic point and a really good segue into the into what I want to get into as well. I mean, that's what that's a that's a really good reason why people should care because a lot of people will respond to, oh yeah, so maybe there's some neo Nazis, big deal. Like, what matters now is defeating Russia, and even if yeah. you really subscribe to that idea, which I do not, um, it, it's like the Syria um, parallel where okay, so you just want to use a bunch of fascists. To defeat your enemy and then what happens after that and you just explained the potential for what happens after that and that is very bad for europe in addition to what else is quite bad for europe is also the fact that you know i keep seeing these articles about uh like sort of like the living standards in europe have going down the economy in europe really suffering interestingly enough alongside this the american economy seems to be doing a bit better um yeah. and you know there was this one article in the new york times uh, the title of it was the peace dividend is over in Europe. Now come the hard trade offs And it, this, was, this was from a couple of months ago. But it basically yeah. makes the argument that, you know, for a long time because of the Marshall Plan and these kinds of welfare mm-hmm. states that the U.S. helped set up in Europe in response to, you know, trying to be a counter to communism. Um Uh, Mm -hmm. Right now, all of this money is being diverted from the welfare state to the actual militaries of Europe uh, because of the war in Ukraine. And as a result, there's a lot of austerity. Um, And if the article doesn't make this argument, but I would make the argument, and this is a good way to also bring in the far right, that this kind of situation actually makes it more likely that we're going to see more far right political parties uh, winning elections in Europe, because we know that's what happens when neoliberalism uh you know is is ratcheted up into high gear pretty much anywhere in the world as the far right seems to benefit as well as i mean you still have this influx of refugees coming in from other parts Mm -hmm. of the world destroyed by imperialism by the way including ukraine who Mm -hmm. i don't think the ukrainians will continue to have open arms uh the longer that this war goes on but i also i do want to show this recent article that is along this um theme in the wall street journal the title is europeans are becoming Yes, we're all worse off. And then the subheading, for those who can't see because they're just listening, Mm -hmm. says an aging population that values its free time set the stage for economic stagnation. Then came Mm COVID-19 and Russia's war in Ukraine. And I just want to read a few parts from this because I I just, you know, I loved the writing of this article, but also the point, it, it really brings the point home. So here's just a bit of an excerpt. The French are eating less foie gras. How do you say it? Fo- How do you say foie gras, this? Foie gras. I foie gras. We <laughs> don't eat this really in the US so much foie gras. Because I'm not I'm not fancy. The French are eating less foie gras and drinking less red wine. Spaniards are mm. stinting on olive oil. Finns are being urged to use saunas on windy days when energy is less expensive. Across mm. Germany, That's... meat and milk consumption <laughs> has fallen to the lowest level mm. in 3 decades mm. and the once booming mm. market for organic food has tanked. Italy's economic development minister convened a crisis meeting in May over prices for pasta, the country's favorite staple, after they jumped by more than double the national inflation rate. And just a couple other things I want to point out here: um, as global trade cools, Europe's heavy reliance on exports, which account for about fifty percent of Eurozone GDP versus ten percent for the U.S., mm-hmm. is becoming a weakness. It goes on to just say a few more statistics that demonstrate that. Things in Europe are not so great, though, interestingly enough, in the U.S., they seem to be getting better, uh, while private consumption in Europe has declined by about 1%. In the U.S., it has increased by nearly 9%. Wages across Europe, ha- because of inflation, and uh, adjusted for inflation and purchasing power, have declined by 3% since 2019, in Germany by 3.5% in Italy and Spain, mm. and by 6% in Greece, while real wages in the U.S. have increased by about 6%. I mean, I could go on, but basically um, this article also goes on to make the point that, like, the war in Ukraine, as well as economic stagnation from COVID, did ha- are, 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 you know, uh, causes of, of this issue. But I guess I raise this to, to note that, like, it does seem like Europe, and we've talked about this before on previous episodes where I've had you on, but Europe, while, like, they continue to sacrifice their population mm-hmm. to benefit U.S. empire without any real care in the world. What is the significance, do you think, of this shift in priorities? I mean, is it sustainable for Europe? Mm-hmm. Won't this lead to uprisings or perhaps accelerate the rise of the far right, like I suggested, um, mm-hmm. like we see in places such as, I mean, Italy? Um, We've seen the far right make gains, though they didn't entirely take over in Spain. Um, mm-hmm. And you've been seeing this this pattern take place. This has been a trend for, for like a decade yeah. now across Europe. Yeah. So I'm curious if you could just kind of like give me your take on a lot of the things I just mentioned. I know it's quite
1: yeah. a bit. Yeah. No, look, um, if you allow me just one quick remark about what we, we were talking about before, but very fast. You know, um, I've sort of really had it with, with this argument um, that... Uh, Ukraine has to use far-right and neo-Nazi fighters because there's a war on, right? It's one of those arguments that at first sounds sort of plausible, all hands on deck, right? There's even one guy who wrote that, all hands on deck, that's the situation. But if you really think about it, it's, it's moronic, it's stupid, it's, it's full of contradictions because If you really believe that, then you are saying that the only way that Ukrainians are able to actually run a sufficient defense is together with the far right and neo-Nazi fighters. So that seems to be saying then that all the other Ukrainians who would also defend their country and who are defending their country, that's not enough. They can't do this on their own, right? Mm. So exactly this argument that you must use the very far right and neo-Nazis because you're fighting Russia implies that Ukraine doesn't have enough people who are not far right and neo-Nazis and ready to defend the country. That, that's an insanely anti-Ukrainian argument, actually, if you think about it. And the reality is, of course, that there are large parts of the Ukrainian military forces that are not far right. They may not be socialists, they may not even be very good centers, but they're not far right and they're not neo-Nazi. There are large parts of the Ukrainian military forces that are like that. And even if you go back to this prisoner release, right, when these five commanders were released to go back to Ukraine from Turkey, actually... Several of them are not far-right. They just happen to be other military commanders also involved in this battle. But there are two of them who are very prominent far-right commanders, right? So what what we are doing, these friends, friends of Ukraine who are justifying the use of the far-right under this all-hands-on-deck argument, they're essentially implying that Ukraine cannot help itself without neo-Nazis, which is, it's a bizarrely anti-Ukrainian position, actually, right? I mean, it's I just have to say this because these people really get on my nerves by now. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> what you it's really like asked about, <laughs> yeah. really ask about, right, the, the situation in Europe, if I understand you correctly, look, this has now been remarked. Uh, by, there was a political article, a long one centering on Germany, there's a Wall Street piece you read out, I didn't know that, but you know, very much the same thing it seems. Um, the Economist is talking about it, right? The Economist is not quick to admit that there are problems that also may have to do with the way we, be the best, behave in this Ukraine war, right? So, the the fact that something with the European economies is not going well is now recognized across the board, and moreover, it is also more and more recognized that this is not just an ordinary blip, right? So the way they usually couch that in their terminology is it's not just a technical recession, right? So if you're in a recession and your your people are hurting, the first thing as a politician in the government, you say, well, it's just technical, which is your way of saying, <laughs> well, these things happen. It's like a flu. It's like a cold, but it will pass, right? Right. Once you have to admit that it's not that, that it's deeper than that, you're again in much worse territory. And they're about to admit this now. They're actually admitting this, right? Scholz has to admit it at least quietly, tacitly in Germany. Um, So this is a real problem. Europe is clearly suffering heavily economically as you've pointed out. But when you take this apart, right, when you try to find out what are the reasons, right? You also ask about the consequences, but if you talk about the reasons first, of course you get a mix of factors, as always, right? You get uh, a demographic problem in many countries, an over-aging problem. Uh, the Wall Street Journal, of course, has to pretend that people don't work enough, but but that's because of <laughs> the Wall Street Journal, right? Let's disregard that. That's, that's them having mean fun. So, you, you have a real demographic problem, you have an aging problem, as in mother, many other industrialized societies, Um, At the same time, the enormous shock that came out of the sudden um, weaning off of cheap Russian energy, right, is extremely important. And in the German case, this goes together with trying to make a transition to green energy Without nuclear power, that's very, very important. Whatever you think about, it's a very important factor if you do it with or without nuclear power. And the Germans have decided to do it without nuclear power, which makes it extremely difficult and more difficult again. These things actually have to do with the war, right? And with the way that the EU has responded to the war and chosen to respond to the war. Now, people who think that that was inevitable can argue that case. The causality is still there, right? what would happen what can this do to politics well it's it's i think you're absolutely right it it is a boost for the far right it won't play out exactly the same everywhere but we have seen it we are already seeing it in germany in if you poll germans now which is being done and and ask about the general popularity of specific parties right the second most popular party is now the rfd That's a radical right party. There's no other way of putting it, right? This is beyond the fence, radical right stuff. This is not ordinary conservatives, as annoying as those can be. Mm -hmm. The second most popular party in German polling at this point is not the social. The the social democrats are still first, actually. But it's not the CDU, the Christian Democrats. It's not the Greens. It's not the FDP, the, the sort of market liberals. It's the AfD, right? Now this hasn't actually yet translated into a lot of electoral victories. And maybe it won't, but I think the likelihood is higher that it will. And you know who also thinks that? The leader of the mainstream conservatives, a guy Mm -hmm. called Friedrich Merz, right? He's the leader of the CDU. That's the mainstream conservatives in Germany. And he is in hot water right now because in an interview a few days ago, he admitted something he should never have admitted. He, just, he should just have thought it, but not said it, which is, oh, well, you know what, with the AfD rising like they do. Of course, we would never, never work with these people on the federal level. That's the extreme right. We don't touch the extreme right. But you know, locally in a city or a county, we could sort of work with these people a little bit. And <laughs> if, you, if you know how German coalition politics has always worked, since World War Two, right? West Germany and then all of Germany. This is the classic wedge into the system, right? It never starts by saying, oh, you are a radical right-wing party, we can't work with you, or you are a radical ecological party, we can't work with you, but we will finally work with you at the federal level. No, it always starts with, oh, well, You are beyond the pale, but we can work with you in a city or town or village. And once you've done that, you can do a land, which is a sub-level, right? And once you have a few land governments doing this sort of coalition government with a radical party, at some point you get to an election where there is a feasible coalition with them at the federal level, the national Mm -hmm. level, and then things give. Right. So the reason why he's in such hot water right now is that everybody in Germany understands this. This this is basic arithmetic of the German political system. So he basically said, well, you know what? They are beyond the pale, but not really. (laughs) But not really. And that's an indication, whatever happens next, that this guy at least understands. And I think he's unfortunately not wrong that this rise of the far right that we are seeing now is probably something that is not going to go very quickly. And that might actually become a major factor in national politics. Mm -hmm. Now, in how far is this connected to the war? Well, If you look at the AfD and what they talk about, so they are xenophobic and racist, right? The classical far right repertory, right? We hate foreigners. That's one thing. So it's a lot about migration, right? In in a very nasty vein. Mm They also have sort of a fundamental criticism of how the political system works, that people don't feel represented and so on and so on. Um, The war is not something they constantly stress. They're not that stupid. But of course there is a connection because the war has created a lot of additional social and economic pressures, right? And if you investigate where people actually vote for them one thing you see is that there still is a higher likelihood of people in the former East Germany voting for them, right? And West Germans then use this, of course, for some arrogant discourse of superiority, but that doesn't have to concern us. They so catch up. Don't worry. So, yeah. <laughs> so you still see them doing better in East Germany. And mm-hmm. when you look at how the people who vote them how they live and how they feel, it's interesting that they're often in relatively deprived regions. So they're in regions where the infrastructure is crumbling, where there are not enough jobs or even fewer jobs than anywhere else, where salaries tend to be on average lower than in other regions and so on and so on, right? but they don't tend to be the poorest. They tend mm-hmm. to be sort of middle class, but they feel horribly threatened because of what they see going on around them in their region. And they're frustrated because they see other regions in the same country that are doing better, right? This is an extremely interesting piece of research, which was recently published by a by German professor, somewhere. Because it makes you think, right? If this is happening in regions inside Germany, still relatively small, where people feel they are under this ongoing economic social degradation, right? And they feel threatened and frustrated in their own existence because of that. And that pushes them to this decision to actually vote for the far right. Well, if larger regions of Europe experience more and more economic problems, then more and more regions of Europe will actually become sites for that sort of logic. More and more people will become, will live in places where they feel this isn't working out, something is wrong, right? Yeah. So the economic pressure and the rise of the far right are definitely connected. The The other thing I wanted to say, you know, the comparison with the United States, this has an extremely explosive component
0: If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear the rest, you can access it by becoming a Breakthrough News member at patreon.com slash breakthroughnews.